This message comes from NPR sponsor, Acorn TV. Acorn TV is brilliant television told brilliantly. From charmingly cozy mysteries to daringly dark dramas. Visit acorn.tv for a 30-day free trial with promo code NPR. Acorn TV. Brilliant. Even after 20 seasons, we still get a little thrill every time we hear hands up, utensils down on Top Chef. Top Chef has showcased up-and-coming chefs and crowned the best of the best. Controversial winners, heartbreaking losses, food that looks good enough to eat, and the foolishness of even attempting risotto, they've all been backbones of the Top Chef franchise over its many, many years. So we thought now would be the perfect time to revisit our conversation about the series. I'm Stephen Thompson. And I'm Linda Holmes, and on this encore episode of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour, we're talking about the Bravo competition show, Top Chef. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Osea. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. They both come in giftable boxes with savings up to $46 and free shipping for a limited time. Go to OSEAMalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide. On Wildcard, the new podcast from NPR, you'll hear people like comedian Jenny Slate reflect on their lives. What is something you think about very differently today than you did 10 years ago? Dressing. Like, not salad dressing. I've always loved it and I'll never stop. (laughs) Dressing my body. That's all part of the new game show, Wildcard, only from NPR. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Joining me and Stephen today from her home in Maryland is writer Kat Chow. Her memoir, Seeing Ghosts, is available for pre-order right now. Go get it. Hello, Kat. Hello. We're so delighted to have you. And also joining us is features writer for New York Magazine and Vulture E. Alex Jung. Hi, Alex. Hi. Thanks for having me. I'm so delighted that you guys could be here to talk about Top Chef. If you're not familiar with it, it premiered back in March of 2006 when we were all small children, it feels like. Uh, It's your basic food competition show. There's a shorter challenge that's known as a quick fire, and the bulk of the episode is spent on a longer challenge that generally requires each chef or sometimes each pair or team of chefs to create a dish for a panel of judges at the end. One person wins, often getting a prize of some kind, which may be anything from a cookbook to a car, and one person goes home. Then at the end of the season, the last chef standing gets $250,000. As we mentioned, uh, they set each season in a different place, and right now they're in Portland with the season that was filmed in a COVID bubble during the pandemic. So, And we should also mention some of the personnel. Tom Colicchio is the head judge they I think they say head judge. The host really is Padma Lakshmi. They have a a bunch of rotating judges. This season, they're using a lot of guest judges who are former contestants from past seasons. They now have like a pretty solid bench of former contestants. Kat, I want to start with you because I know that you have done a kind of a super duper rewatch of Top Chef during the last year. You could call it that, yeah. Did you rewatch all the seasons? I rewatched almost all of them. I weirdly did not watch the first season. Um, But yeah, 
rewatching Top Chef became like this bomb where I would go through a season in maybe four days and <laughs> not shower, not respond to texts. <laughs> sure. It's been so fascinating. And I really love this season. I was very nervous about it, um, this current one, because I don't know, I wasn't sure how it would turn out with filming and COVID and also just how my reaction to seeing something filmed during this time that also is so formulaic that I kind of came to enjoy and I like the structure of it. And also just seeing people in a restaurant setting when, you know, we've been stuck inside and with our masks on and and whatnot. Yeah. Do you like it? Do you like this season? I do, actually. Some of my favorite contestants, I think Shoda is amazing. Shoda Nakajima. Um, I think that what they're doing right now with bringing in past contestants as judges is actually really thoughtful because it seems like the challenges and the judging is sort of it comes from the experience of someone who competed on the show. So I appreciate that format. Yeah. It's also good branding. <laughs> Very good branding. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Alex, how do you like the season generally? I like it. I mean, I, I find the formula of Top Chef to be very comforting as well. Mm -hmm. So it is just a joy to watch. It feels stable in some ways mm -hmm. uh, as that sort of like middle brow comfort TV type of thing. And I think it that's why I've always watched Top Chef. Like I never feel not in the mood for it because it's also paced out well enough. It's not like Drag Race where I'm like, oh my God, there's another season. I have yeah. to keep watching. I want <laughs> yeah. to kill myself. Right? Like Top Chef, it's like I miss it. And then right. the moment when I miss it, it comes back. Right. <laughs> it's true. Steven, do you like this season? Yeah, I love this show and I love this season. I think that Top Chef in the spectrum of competitive cooking shows falls right into a happy medium between the kind of intense screaminess of a show like Hell's Kitchen, which which is very much mm -hmm. about conflict and yelling and the kind of twinkly celebration of a show like Great British Baking Show, which can be so soft that it's not always 100% compelling. To me, this show lies right in the middle in a way that is really comforting. It is a competition. There's intensity to it. There is some tension and discomfort in some of these competitions. And yet at the same time, it is a pretty friendly competition and you can kind of celebrate successes instead of uh, being happy when somebody you hate gets kicked off. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it kind of lies right in the middle in a way that really, really works as comfort food. And I think this particular season, they're getting so much right. I think they have done some really nice course correcting on this show. Yeah. They had a run of seasons in the middle where the seasons were way too long. This feels a little more compact. I think the COVID bubble has made the show a little bit sweeter. And I think the decision to kind of dispense with the like celebrity chefs in favor of people who've been on the show gives it a quality that I think really, really works. Do you guys have any advice for them at all? Cook with passion. You know, you put your all into every dish. It just boils down to the plate of food being delicious. Don't get too complicated when creating the dishes. The more you put on the plates, the more you're going to be judging on. It's very important to present a sense of authorship I love Gregory. I love Carrie. I love, love Kwame. Gregory. I like these people and having them come back from a position of experience really, really works for this show. Yeah. And it's important, you know, I think that these people, although they are former contestants, they're also really hotshot chefs in a yeah. lot of cases. You talked about Kwame. Kwame's a big deal chef. Yeah. And, you know, what I really have enjoyed about this show, you talked about course correcting, Stephen. I feel like 
there are two things that I think have sort of are related that have happened in this show in the last five to seven seasons. And the first is a reduction, as you said, in the interest in kind of jerks, Mm -hmm. people being jerks. Strongly agree. I feel like there was this series of seasons where they really kind of got fascinated by these like guys who started fights with everyone, regardless of, of what they're like in real life on the show. The impression of these guys was that they just fought with everyone all the time, whether it's Marcel or Elan or Spike or Andrew, all those guys were just kind of constantly putting other people down and beating their chests. And a lot of them were, I got to say, overtly sexist, among other things, Mm -hmm. overtly misogynist. Girls don't belong in the kitchen. Like, that's not cute. And I think they have gotten away from that. And I think one way they've gotten away from that is that I think Padma Lakshmi's kind of presence and influence has increased on this show in the last bunch of seasons. I feel like as she's asserted herself in different media, she had the show that we talked about on this show, Taste the Nation, that I thought was terrific. So she kind of brings more and more of herself and her kind of production notions um, and sensibility to the show. And I think that's helped rebalance it a little bit. Kat, what do you think? Yeah, I'm really glad that you brought up Marcel, who I believe it was in season two, some other contestants drunkenly tried to shave his head. And one of the other contestants was disqualified for that. And just watching these seasons, it's really interesting to observe when Top Chef was more like a reality show where they focused on the house dynamic, where I think it was... um, season five or so when there was that like really steamy affair oh yeah. leah and hosea yeah yeah and and then also season nine i have to bring this up but the injustices committed against beverly kim by just the mean girls and sort of racist girls heather Lindsay, and, and sarah to an extent watching that in 2020 where they're just saying things like Oh, like I wouldn't want to cook a dish that's too Asian because that might get me eliminated, Beverly. I'm going to make a spice rub, the plus spice. I just want to make sure, Bev, that the whole dish isn't too Asian because that's not my style. And I'm not going home, Bev. They were exhibiting what looked like, to me, abusive behavior. They were very mean to her. And I think the dynamics of that season are so unpleasant. And I think they've really stepped away from the meanness of that in recent seasons and certainly this season. What do you think, Alex? No, I I think that's correct. I think the show in some ways to me has like the best face of American meritocracy (laughs) on reality TV. Like if you believe in this myth, right? And if you think that this thing is real, Top Chef is the closest thing to embody that feeling, right? Where you're watching it now, I think, and you're like, okay, like who is really performing at the best? And And it feels like it's up to you, the individual, in some ways to be like, I am doing my best dish. And then if I don't do that, then it's because I didn't perform my best. Right. And so you can't blame other people. You can't complain about the challenges because everybody has to deal with them. You know, there's this kind of like cutting everyone down to the same level idea that the show sort of plays into that I think is not always true either, right? Like, I think the first episode of this new season was really interesting because it was a blind uh, taste test or a blind uh, presentation of the dishes where they would just get to know everyone through their plates, right? So it is really this idea about like, oh, yeah, we're not judging you based off of who you are, what you look like, any of these sort of identities, right? But everybody is talking about identity. Everybody's talking about putting themselves on the plate, 
and you can kind of see like who has fine dining training and who doesn't, right? Like it becomes very obvious that this isn't blind, that you can taste a three Michelin star restaurant trained chef on the plate, you know? And that's obviously still something that they tend towards, right? Yeah. I find that tension to be really interesting because we do take Tom's word for it that this is the best dish. Um, And I I don't know. That's a tension that I haven't quite ever resolved, but I find really interesting. And I feel like it's really come to the forefront in this season in particular. Yeah, for sure. I agree. And I think the other thing about a quote-unquote blind tasting is that whatever bias comes from what kind of food you as a judge think of as sophisticated or whatever, I think there is some value in trying it that way, that blind taste test way, because, you know, I do think there's there's some history of regardless of what the food is, talking to particularly women chefs and chefs of color and women chefs of color in particular about like whether your food has heart or whether it's homey and then talking to white dudes about technique, not just on top chef, I'm not saying, but like, Uh particularly if you look at shows like Chopped, you'll see a lot of this, like, I love your food because it's so like, they don't want to say it's so ethnic. So they'll say like, it's so homey. And sometimes it's like, Mm -hmm. so I do like the idea of trying to just try the food. But as you say, once you try the food, you know, for example, a gumbo is still a gumbo and you have, you know, and chefs have ideas about what kind of food that is, regardless of whether they can actually look at the person who made it, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not as if that eliminates all of the biases that might exist. And, you know, one of the other seasons that I always talk about is New Orleans, which was ultimately won by this dude named Nick, who again was a guy (sighs) who got in arguments with people. And there was a thing that at the final meal, he was yelling at like the people working in the kitchen. Where are you coming from? Because they didn't get their first course? God damn it! Was that Nick? Yeah. Well, that's not good. Something made Nick very angry back there. And he still won over this chef named Nina, who has gone on to be a very, very successful chef. But I felt like New Orleans and the fact that Nick wound up winning kind of was maybe an inflection point where they started to try to kind of tamp down the attention on those kind of unpleasant, yelly, like, I was a huge admirer of Anthony Bourdain, but if you process him the wrong way, Mm -hmm. you start thinking that the most interesting and innovative and best chefs are the people who are jerks to everyone. One thing that we've learned, I think, from the Great British Baking Show and the Great Pottery Throwdown and shows like that is you don't actually have to have a villain. You can put together a reality competition show made entirely of people you would basically want to spend time with. And that's fine. You can still have rooting interests among a cast of nice people. And you can still have dramatic tension from the competition. And you really lose nothing. You don't actually have to have a binary of heroes and villains. And I think making this show over the course of 18 seasons, they've kind of figured that out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Anytime you have a dynamic that relies on the creation of villains, you're also always going to have issues with who Who winds up playing that role. Because it both encourages people to actually act that way, and it encourages the show to focus on that element of your personality. Kat also talked about the incident with them trying to shave Marcel's head. And as she mentioned, the only person who got booted for that was Cliff, who was Mm -hmm. a black chef, as opposed to Ilan, who eventually won the season based on what we saw on the show, appeared to have instigated the entire thing. And yet 
no consequences for him. So when you play around with this stuff with villainy, it's very complicated anyway. And I always think a show speaks to its heart partly through, if it runs a long time, it speaks to its heart partly through who it tends to bring back. And for a while, Mm -hmm. they were bringing back over again for these, you know, whether it was for all-star stuff or for little guest appearances, people like Marcel, people like Elon, people like Mike Isabella, people like- Or John Besh. Some of these people who I just thought were really unpleasant. And now I think they're more in a cycle where they bring back like Shirley and they bring back Brooke Williamson yep. and they bring back Melissa King. These are just like really likable, lovable, yep. cool people and people who radiate warmth. I mean, the show has never really, I think, like addressed or like reckoned with restaurant culture. It it really tries to take on a very particular version of chef culture, which yeah. I think they embody through Tom, right? Which is mm-hmm. do your best, respect the ingredient, cook the protein yep. well, you know? Focus on service. And salt your food. Right. Exactly. It feels very like sort of like to the bone about like what it means to be a chef in this kind of like almost like heroic man sort of sense, I think. But I think you only sort of see chef culture actually happen in those bad men actually in the early seasons of the way they would talk to women, the way they would treat each other. That is just to me like an outgrowth of the restaurant industry also, you know, like I think is a famously toxic place to work, especially for women, especially for people of color. Right. One thing I kind of miss uh, about this current season is that you don't really get to see certain house dynamics or what it's like with their living situation. And um, in general, you know, earlier seasons had that, newer seasons don't as much. But I kind of crave sometimes those reaction shots where you see the different chefs and the little pockets they've formed and who's friends with whom and and what they might be saying to each other behind the scenes. And one of the specific moments that really stuck out to me was watching the actually the 2020 season. One of the chefs, I believe it was Kevin Gillespie, had cooked plantation food in the lead up to Restaurant Wars. Country Captain is a restaurant that represents a style of Southern cuisine that's rarely shown outside of people's homes. I'm going to serve the family style meal influenced by the plantation South. Got to figure out something that we're going to serve the canned paisan. The inspiration for the design of the restaurant definitely comes from my grandmother. So this is a very personal exploration for me. It was interesting just the usage of that phrase plantation in 2020. And I believe I remember seeing on Instagram, if I recall correctly, he apologized for that and, you know, kind of talked about the context behind that and why that might be hurtful. But I remember watching that in early 2020 as it was unfolding. And I remember wondering what the other chefs of color who were in that season were talking about, because so much of their food also was coming from, you know, their racial backgrounds or their ethnic heritages or just their family lives. And it it just all seemed so personal. You know, you have one chef cooking Chinese American food, you have one chef cooking plantation food, uh, and you have other chefs cooking food from like the Black Diaspora. And I do wonder if in this current season, um, you know, I mean, obviously not a response to what happened last season, but maybe sort of an update of how to address people's stories and what they tell and the importance of food that comes from a different background. Already in this season, we've, it's not a spoiler to say that In a couple of the episodes, we've already had the guest judges, Gregory and Kwame, bring the competitors to restaurants of the African diaspora. There is a lovely episode about indigenous food from one of the tribes in the Portland or Oregon area. And so it's just an interesting 
movement and an adjustment that kind of is just it's just happened and people on the show are just absorbing it and seem very respectful so far. Yeah, you definitely have the sh- the show kind of trying to figure out how to grapple with those bigger things about identity. You also, of course, mm-hmm. still have a reality show. And it also reckons, of course, at the same time with kind of typical reality show things. You know, particularly, Stephen, I know you're a big fan of the um, product placement on this show. <laughs> oh, man. The number of, like, beauty shots of San Pellegrino <laughs> that happen on this show. Furnished by San Pellegrino. The Glad family of products. <laughs> the uh-huh. Glad family uh-huh. of products. I think one of the things that I've really liked about season 18 is that because it's in a bubble, you don't have as many opportunities to be like, let's have an episode centered entirely on Trolls World Tour. I forgot about that. <laughs> Like, we bring out, look, look, it's Kelly Clarkson, and she's here to talk about Trolls World Tour. And now we're going to somehow try to graft a cooking challenge onto that film. Yeah. You know what? I'm glad that the chefs are, the winner gets at least $250,000 from San Pellegrino, um, (laughs) as opposed to RuPaul's Drag Race, where they're still only getting $100,000. Like, I'm like, come on, at least, like, get someone to give these people money. Yeah. Well, we want to know, of course, what you think about Top Chef. Find us at facebook.com slash PCHH. That brings us to the end of our show. Kat Chow, E. Alex Jung, Stephen Thompson, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This episode was produced by Mike Katzif and edited by Jessica Reedy. Hello, Come In provides our theme music. Thank you for listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. I'm Linda Holmes, and we'll see you all tomorrow. There are a lot of issues on voters' minds right now. Six big ones could help decide the election. Guns, reproductive rights, immigration, the economy, health care, and the wars overseas. On the Consider This podcast from NPR, we will unpack the debates on these issues and what's at stake. You can listen to NPR's Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. On It's Been a Minute, we're keeping you in the know when it comes to culture. I break down the latest trends and the forces behind them and introduce you to the creatives who think deeply about how we live today. Come for some good old cultural analysis and have a few laughs with me. Listen to the It's Been a Minute podcast from NPR. On NPR's Throughline. We cannot function for 24 hours without COBOL because it's in our smartphone, our tablet, our laptop. And as a consequence, the lives of the people living in that part of the Congo descended into just a catastrophe. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.